Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. Romans chapter 5 is kind of a turning point in the book of Romans. So Paul has really kind of masterfully up to this point kind of Uh, really laid the groundwork, has really brought us to this place to where we can kind of begin to wrap our minds around what justification is, justification by faith. And and I love that that first song that we sang was, you know, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that we're not to lean on our own understanding, but we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, and and we acknowledge Him in all of our ways. Uh, You know, Romans is one of those things that if we're going to grab a hold of it, It's really not something that we can do by leaning on our own understanding because the concepts found in the book of Romans are are not things that come naturally to us. They're things that really blow us away and are kind of uh, counterintuitive to our our carnal nature. And so Paul has been really laying the groundwork for justification uh, by faith. And in in chapters 1 through 3, he really established our need for salvation, first of all, because nobody cares about a Savior until they realize that they need saving. Nobody cares about the parachute until they realize that the plane is going down. And so Paul, in the first three chapters of Romans, he really makes it really clear that we are all guilty before the Lord, that we've all sinned, there's none righteous, no not wrong. Every single man, woman, and child, we've sinned. And then Paul goes on in chapters 3 and 4 after he shows our great need to be saved and he shows us how it is that we find salvation. How is it that we come into this thing of salvation? How is it that we are justified? And he shows us that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That we're justified just as though we've never sinned, just by believing upon Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. It's not by works. It's not by obeying the law. It's not by being a a good person. It's not because you've been baptized. It's just because we have simply put our faith and hope in what Jesus has done on our behalf. And Paul, he used the example of Abraham's life. See, when Paul is is giving us this idea of justification, justification by faith, you know, he lets us know very clearly, this isn't something I pulled out of thin air. This isn't something I pulled out of my hat. This is the way that it's always been. And he showed us through Abraham's life that that is the way it always has. Because there in Genesis chapter 12, in verse 6, it says that Abraham believed and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. See, that was Abraham's salvation experience. It was in that moment when he believed that it was accounted unto him for righteousness. It wasn't after he was circumcised, that outward uh, expression, that outward mark of an inward change, much like baptism is for us as Christians. It wasn't after he went through some religious activity. He was justified, made righteous, 14 years before he ever took the mark of circumcision. It wasn't because Abraham obeyed the law. For you see, the law wouldn't come for hundreds of years so when it says that Abraham was, he believed, and it was accounted him for righteousness, is because he believed in nothing else. And so Paul uses uh, Abraham's life to really explain this to us. And then in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he, he sums it up and says that it, it's by grace through faith that we're saved. Uh, and and uh, that not of ourselves. It's the free gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? This idea of being justified, of being saved, of having our sins forgiven. Uh, it, it 
comes by grace. Just because God is good. Because of what he did on the cross. Not because of who we are or, or, or what we've done. And so Paul, after he lays these things out, and why he shows that we all need to be saved, shows us how we can be saved. And now in chapter 5, we get to this turning point. After he's laid all the groundwork, uh, he's now moving forward for the rest of the book, really under uh, you know, the idea that we have this concept down. He, he's moving forward saying, all right, we're not going to touch on it. We've got it. Justification by faith. And now he moves into the realm of what this means for us. So we're justified by faith, just as though we've never sinned at all, by putting our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus. So now what? What does that mean for us uh, presently? Well, what does that mean for us personally? What does that mean for us practically? How does this thing uh, really play out in our lives? It's great to say, all right, we're justified by faith. We're saved because we believe upon the Lord. But what does that look like? How does that play out? And... That's what chapter 5 really is about. And on Sunday, the first five verses we looked at, we talked really about the benefits of believing. Oh, we talked about uh, the blessings of the believer. Uh, and Paul opens up chapter 5 with a therefore. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and then he goes through all of these just practical benefits that we experience as believers uh, in Jesus. And, and the first thing that we looked at on Sunday was, was peace. As believers, we had peace with God. Uh, we were at war with God. We were enemies with God, but no longer. Uh, because the thing that stood between us and God was sin. And Jesus on the cross dealt with our sin. So, so we have peace with God. But not only peace with God, uh, we also have access to God. That we can go before the throne of grace. That we can pray to the Lord anytime for anything and the Lord hears. He's given us his Holy Spirit that we might be comforted and directed and taught. Uh, we have access to God because the veil was torn. R remember when Jesus was dying on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and there were some crazy things that happened. The earth went dark. The earth shook, there was an earthquake, and the veil, as Jesus was paying for our sins, remember what happened? It tore from top to bottom. The veil there, it separated in the temple the holy place from the holy of holies. It separated the place where the, the priests did their religious activity to the place where God's presence dwelt. Now, that was an epic symbol for all of humanity. It showed us that we no longer go to the Lord, we no longer approach God, through a mediator such as a man, like a high priest. Or even today, the Catholic Church, the priest. We don't pray through Mary. We have direct access to God through Jesus. And that's a benefit. So Paul says we have peace with God. We're no longer separated. We have access to God. But we can go before the throne anytime we want. We have hope in God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have the hope of heaven. Even as we sang tonight, what a wonderful reality we know that Christ has, has purchased heaven for us. And not just hope in heaven, but Paul also goes on to say that we glory in tribulation. That we can even rejoice in the troubles of this life. When your car breaks down, when your girlfriend dumps you, when you don't have money to pay your bills, when you slam your finger in the door. I hate troubles. 
But the Lord says we can rejoice in troubles because, what? Tribulation works patience. Patience, experience, experience, hope, and hope does not disappoint. See, God is at work in our life through the trouble, just like a potter shapes the clay. Right? There's times in my life when I feel like, man, I'm being pressed on all sides. I'm just going around and around and around. I feel like things are heating up and I'm in the fire, but the Lord is doing something amazing through your life and mine through this thing of trial. It's the process of sanctification. The Lord didn't save you to leave you where he found you. But every single day of your life, he wants to make you more like his son, Jesus. And so these are the benefits that we have that Paul has been going through. And Paul continues that same line of thinking tonight. Just what does this thing of justification mean for us practically? And we'll get into a couple more blessings and we'll unpack a couple more realities for us. But we're going to be in uh, verse 6 tonight of chapter 5. That's where we're going to start. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having uh, now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, uh, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall uh, we be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So Paul now, he goes on after naming some of the benefits to talk about the timing of Christ's death for us. Now, now why is that important? It's extremely important for us that we understand the timing of, of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And you'll see that come into focus as we kind of make our way through this uh, idea through this truth. Because Paul says here, he says that while we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for us. So when did Jesus die for us? Well, it's not after I started getting better grades in school. It's not when I got my act together. Jesus didn't die for me when I was emotionally stable or religiously active. Jesus died for me. Uh, and us, it says, when we were Weak, when we were without strength, when we were helpless, when we were hopeless, when there was nothing that we could do at all to improve our condition. We were spiritually dead and separated from God. Nothing that we could do to improve that. That is when Jesus died for us, Paul says. So he not only died for us when we were weak, when, when there was nothing that we could do, but he died for the ungodly. See, he died for us when we were at war with him. He died for us while we were shaking our fist at him, when we were separated from him, when we were a living according to our own carnal nature. And Paul says kind of parenthetically, who would do that? You know, he, he says, Man, uh, you might die for a good person, for a righteous person, uh, and that would happen kind of rarely. That's what Paul says. He says, you know, you might die for somebody if they're righteous. We're neither good nor righteous. Paul has done a very studious job of laying that out for us up to this point. So God didn't die for us because we're good. But Paul says, man, who would die for somebody else? Man, to lay down your life for another person 
is the greatest sacrifice that you could ever make for somebody. It's the greatest expression of love you could ever make. And so who would die for another person? Would you die for the person? Well, you probably, you might die for the person sitting next to you. If you're a husband, boy, you better answer that question right tonight. But what about for a total stranger? Would you die for just a, a total stranger, somebody that you didn't know? How about somebody who had uh, an incestuous relationship with their children? Consensual, but incestuous. Now we're getting somewhere. Now you're like, oh, man, I don't think so. Probably not, definitely. Well, guess what? Lot would fit into that category. And Lot was considered righteous by the Lord. And when God was destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, he would not destroy that city because Lot was still there, and he considered Lot righteous. Jesus died for Lot with his disgusting history. How about an adulteress? person. Would you die for the person who stole your, your, your neighbor's wife? Again, you're like, I don't think so. How about someone who, who murdered, uh, you know, a co-worker? You're like, oh, I don't think so. But that describes David. David was an adulterous murderer, and God died for him. So Paul is saying, boy, you know, Christ died for us while we were enemies, while we were railing against God, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners. He says, that's not normal. Most people wouldn't even die for a godly person, let alone for a murderer. Uh, and for a thief, like God did. And so uh, the thief on the cross is another example that I don't want to pass up uh, because he was a, a murderous thief, and God died for him as well. And so would you lay down your life for a stranger? I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, Will Witt, he's this uh, young guy. He works for Prager University. He does these things called Man on the Street. Well, he'll go to these different events and he'll get out his microphone and his camera and he'll ask these questions. And it's just interesting to see people's responses. And so he went to, uh, it, was some, it was like a vegan protest sort of situation. And he was asking people if you were put in a situation to where your dog was drowning at the same time as another human being was drowning, but you didn't know the person, would you save your dog or would you save the stranger that you didn't know? And guess what the majority of people said? They said the dog. I totally would have said that they would have saved the stranger. It just shows, you know, the state of our society. Uh, but that's Paul's point, really, uh, that Jesus, he laid down his life. He, he died for us. And again, the timing is so important, not while we were doing good, but while we were yet sinning, while we were in our sin, while we were enemies with God. And that's so important for us to understand because the fact that God died for us when we were enemies, when we were rebelling against him, it demonstrates, he says, his love for us. See, when you feel like God is mad at you, when God is down on you, when God is disappointed in you, remember that he loved you enough to die for you. The, the worst you on your worst day, Jesus looked down and said, man, I love him, I love her, and I'm going to give my life for them in that state. See, this whole idea that God died for us while we were yet sinners, it clarifies something for us. It shows us that God's love for us is not based on our performance. It's not a performance-based love that God has for you and me. His love for you is not a testimony to your lovability. 
I'm sorry if you're in here and you just think, boy, the Lord is lucky to have me. I'm such a lovable person. It is not a testimony to your lovability. It is a testimony to his goodness and an evidence of his love for us. And that is what Paul is getting across. So the next time the enemy comes along to you and says, boy, you know what? You're a huge disappointment to God. Well, you haven't worked hard enough. You haven't done enough. Remember that God died for you when you were helpless, when you were rebellious, when you were sinning against him, your worst you on your worst day. It's not about you. See, and that's what Paul is getting at. That's what he's been getting at. It's about Jesus and what he's done. And so he died for us. Why? That we might be justified. Again, just as though we've never sinned. Paul continues on uh, here in verse 5. And after he, he discusses the timing of when Jesus died for us, that that demonstrated God's love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from uh, wrath through him. So even more than that. So that's great that Jesus died for us and we've been justified by his blood. But much more than that, now we get to another benefit. Now we are saved from his wrath. Now you and I, we are saved from God's wrath. Uh, what does that mean that we're saved from God's wrath? See, because we were all sinners, just like, again, Paul has demonstrated so masterfully, because the wages of sin is death, because God is a righteous and just God who cannot overlook sin, we were toast. <laughs> That's it. We had sinned and we were done for. We were doomed. But because we were justified, because God's, Jesus' righteousness was imputed to us because it's just as though we've never sinned. Uh, boy, now we are saved from God's wrath. See, but here's the thing. God's wrath for you, God's wrath for me, it just didn't evaporate. It's like, all right, well, God says I'm forgiven, so I guess I'm forgiven. No, remember, God still is a just God. He cannot wink away sin. He cannot sweep sin under the rug. It has to be dealt with. And if he forgave you, that means somebody else had to pay the price. And that somebody else, of course, was Jesus. Every bit of wrath that God had for you and for me was poured out upon the person of Jesus on the cross. So uh, imagine with me all of God's wrath that he would have stored up for you in your life as like water in a vessel, maybe water in a bucket. Or maybe if you're like me, like water in a swimming pool. Or maybe water in a lake. Right? And imagine that water being poured out. Not on you or me, but on Jesus as our substitute. But imagine that vessel of, of wrath being emptied out. Completely to where there is not one drop left. See, that's what Jesus has done for us. Uh, there's no wrath of God left for me because Jesus has absorbed every single bit of it. Uh, that's why in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, it says that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we weren't appointed unto God's wrath, but we were appointed unto salvation through Jesus. Uh, we can't have God's wrath come down on us because Jesus already paid the price. Super important for us to understand that. See, because there is coming a time when God's wrath will be poured out on this world. When the wrath of God will be poured out on a Christ-rejecting 
sinful world. Now, you do not have to be a Bible scholar to look around at our world and say, man, the trajectory that we are on is not sustainable. The, the, the morality as it plummets, the corruption as it rises. As you look through biblical prophecy, as you study through it, it becomes very clear that what we have going on right now cannot last forever. And that's reality. At some point, God's wrath is going to be poured out on this world. And the Bible talks about that in the book of Revelation 6 through 19. And the Bible calls that the great tribulation period. Seven years of absolute wrath and destruction where God pours out his fierce anger, his wrath on the world. Now, what is the purpose of the tribulation? We need to understand that. The purpose of the tribulation, this time where God's pouring out, is twofold. First of all, the tribulation is really to uh, bring the Jew to an understanding of who Jesus is. Right? Sometimes in, in our church age, we forget that God isn't done with the Jew. We think, all right, the tribulation is all about God's wrath and all about the end times. And it is that. But it's during the tribulation that the Jew, their eyes are going to be open. They're going to see Jesus for who he is. And they're going to be saved. Secondly, it's punishment for the world as God's wrath is poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And that's described for us in Revelation 6 through 19. And, and you can just read through that. Read through Revelation. You see the, uh, the events unfold chronologically. In, in the first two chapters, or really the chapter 2 and 3, we see, boy, the letters to the churches after there's an introduction in chapter 1. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 are, are these uh, letters to the churches. But after the churches are addressed in Revelation, we don't see the church again on earth until chapter 19, when they are coming back with Jesus to bring final judgment to that's the crescendo, that tribulation period, it builds to that final judgment where Jesus comes and he lays waste to all who would stand against Israel and against him. Uh, and there in Revelation chapter 6, 15, at the beginning of this judgment, this is what it says, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said unto the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Now, whose wrath is being talked about? God's wrath being poured out. Again, we will not face God's wrath. Why? Because every single drop of wrath that was to be poured out on you, was already poured out on Jesus. We'll be taken out before that happens. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. See, here's the thing about that statement. If we were to go through the tribulation, that would not be very comforting, would it? It says, comfort one another with these words. You will be taken out, just like Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. He was not destroyed because he was righteous. Not until Lot was removed was the city destroyed. Just like Enoch. Enoch was raptured up. Sneak preview. And you would say, well, wait a second. Well, what about Noah? Well, think back with me. What's the tribulation period all about? 
right? First of all, it's to really show the Jew who Jesus is. The Jew will go through the tribulation, and yet they will be saved. They'll come through the other side, along with anyone who puts their trust in Jesus. That is the picture that we see in the story of Noah. So God's wrath for us, it's already been poured out. That's the thing. We've been saved from the wrath of God eternally. What a glorious thing that is. What a, so when we get into this mindset like, boy, God's mad at me. He's going to punish me. He doesn't bring retribution in that way because it's already been poured out. So then what? So then Paul goes on to talk about uh, this atonement. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul says, well, check this out. If it, while we were enemies of God, and he brought this huge blessing into our life, whereby we're saved and, and we're, we're not going to have to face God's wrath and, and his righteousness has been imputed to us and we're justified by faith. If God did all of that while we were sinners, how much more is he going to be able to bless our lives now that we have been reconciled to him? You think about that. If the Lord has blessed your life so incredibly from the place of being an enemy of his, how much now more so can God bless your life that you belong to him practically day by day? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So uh, we've been reconciled. Uh, There's been reconciliation. And that word for reconciliation uh, is atonement. Uh, at one meant. It means that we now have peace, uh, again, with the Lord. Uh, there's at one meant. H- have you ever been on the outs with somebody? Like you, you feel bad, you, you've done something wrong. I, I, I'm in this situation very often. If you know me, if you're a friend uh, of mine, you know I am like the worst texter ever on the face of the planet. Like you will send me a text and I will read that text with every intention to respond to you And yet, somehow, I do not respond to those texts. And then I see you in person at church, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I'm so, there's like, I feel like we're on the outs. And then, so graciously, all of you are like, hey, no worries, that's okay. That's atonement, atonement, it's okay now. And that's what we have between us and God. And that is what Paul is saying. Boy, just like the, the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal? Boy, he, he, he left his father's house. To, he took his uh, inheritance early. He went out and he, he spent it all on, on crazy, sinful living. And then as he's there in the pig pen, rethinking his life's choices, thinking, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have done this. He thinks, well, maybe I could go back to my father's house. And you remember kind of the, the idea that he had about how his father would react? Like, maybe my father will just put me to work, like, as an indentured servant. Like, you owe me something. But, but what did the father do? He ran to the son. There was at one moment, atonement. There was reconciliation there. And that's what we have as believers because we have been justified. So now Paul, as he so masterfully has done throughout the beginning of this book, anticipates the questions that we would have anticipates the questions that the readers of this letter uh, might have. And so, so, you know, we get this, all right, you know, my sacrifice has been, or, or that the Jesus' sacrifice has, has now made me justified. But how can 
uh, one man's sacrifice pay for the sins of the whole world? How is it that just by one man's sacrifice, all of the sins of the world are paid for? Right? That, that really doesn't make sense. It seems like that if our sins are being atoned for, then there needs to be death for all of our sins as they take place. But, but just the, the death of, of one man atones for all of the sin for all of the whole world. How does that work out exactly? Right? That, that's something where we kind of have to put on our thinking caps and say, wait a second, I really never thought about that. But Paul, anticipating this, he lays this out for us uh, beginning in verse 12. I need to get some of those little things where your glasses dangle. So verse 12, Paul kind of continues on and he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses results in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So now Paul gets into this uh, whole idea of how is it that all of our sins can be forgiven by one man's death on the cross. And he begins that journey by going back to where sin came from. And sin started in the garden. It was in the garden that Adam blew it. It was in the garden where Adam ate of the forbidden fruit. It was in the Adam that, uh, or not in the Adam, it was in the, the garden where Adam brought sin into our world. And that one man's sin, it had very serious repercussions for the entire world. Through Adam's sin, through that one act of sin, boy, we see some things. Through that one act of disobedience. Many say that Adam, he was the one who dropped the original bomb. <laughs> the Adam bomb, get it? Uh, but because of that bomb, because Adam bombed out, sin entered into the world. That was the first repercussion. Because he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entered into the world. And uh, along with sin came the curse of sin. Sickness, death, uh, sorrows, diseases. Uh, but that's not how God created it. That wasn't God's plan from the very beginning. God created the garden, and it was what? It was great. It was perfect. It was just man and God hanging out, uh, enjoying each other. It says that Adam and Eve walked with God when? In the cool of the day. They just enjoyed the Lord. But then sin came, and it, it messed everything up. And we say, well, how is that fair? 
that because Adam sinned, now we have the guilt attributed to, to our account. You see, and, and that's the whole thing that Paul is doing. He, he's making this contrast that through one man, sin came, but through one man, the greater, Jesus, salvation came. Right? So, so why is it fair that, that when Adam sinned, we got dinged? Why is it that when Adam blew it, we got a demerit? Why is Adam's sin charged to our account? Because Adam was our representative in the garden. He was the first of our kind. He represented us. He was our champion. You say, well, I still don't like that. I think I would have been dead, uh, done better than Adam. You wouldn't have done better than Adam. He was the best that we had to offer. That would be like being invited to a weightlifting competition and having Arnold Schwarzenegger you know, kind of fill in for you and then having some crazy animal come and outlift Arnold Schwarzenegger and then having you say, well, well that's not fair because I never got a chance to lift myself personally. I'll tell you what. If somebody outlifted the governor, they definitely would have outlifted you, right? And that's the whole situation. That Adam was our representative in the garden. If he couldn't have done it, right, with, with no disposition to sin, right, with no baggage whatsoever, then there's no way we would have been able to do any better. In fact, we would have done worse. It's a guarantee. It's just a, a, a fact. And if you say, well, I don't think so, well, try it. Go a week without sinning. See how good you do. I guarantee you can't do it. That's just the, the reality of it. And so when Adam failed, sin entered into humanity. And because sin entered into humanity, death entered into humanity. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting. Because of Adam's failure, death came. And now every single one of us faces death. Again, that's not the way it was at first. God didn't create us to die. Do you realize that? That death wasn't a part of the original equation. And that is why we don't like death. That is why when we look in the mirror, there's this disconnect between who I feel like I am and who is reflecting back at me. How can I be this old? Where did those wrinkles come from? I, I, man, I looked in the mirror before service and I had a nose hair that was like 15 feet long. It's like, what's going on with my life? See, we don't like death because it's not a part of who we were meant to be. And we spend lots of money trying to avoid death. We've talked about it before. The billions, with a B, of dollars that we spend on cosmetic surgeries and cryogenic freezing and conscious uploading. We do all sorts of things to avoid death, but death is a guarantee. Ten out of ten people die. It's just the way that it goes. Why? Because Adam sinned. Now think about that. That's what the word is telling us, that we die because Adam sinned. Notice that it doesn't say that we die because we sinned. Let that sink in for a minute. You don't die because you sinned. The curse of death was not put upon you because you sinned. The curse of death was put upon your life and mine because Adam sinned. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Not the wages of sins, sin, singular. Adam's sin caused death to be transferred through all generations, to all of us. And so uh, Paul here says, all right, one man caused uh, sin to enter in, one man caused death to enter in. It wasn't a result of your sin or my sin. It was all a result of Adam's sin. And this can kind of like rub us the wrong way because it seems like we're, we're blaming our sin on somebody else. But don't worry, Paul doesn't leave us in this place. He, he squares up with us. But it's important that we understand this. 
Because Paul backs this up. He, he goes on to say that, listen, people kept dying after Adam, who had not sinned like Adam. That from Adam to Moses, there was no law whatsoever. But people died as though they had violated a law that wasn't there. How could that be? Uh, they couldn't have violated the law. And where there's no law, uh, there's, there's no charge against the law. Right? That's what Paul goes on to say. When there's no law, how could you be dying for breaking a law that doesn't exist? Right? It's like if, you know, you jumped in your car. Whatever it is you, you drive and you hit I-5 and you're like, I'm going to see how fast this bad boy will go. And you're going 120, 130, 140. Whoop, you get pulled over. Guess where you're going? To jail. Because we have a law that says you have to drive the speed limit and over a certain speed limit, boy, you're going to jail. You're going to be writing letters from the Stony Lonesome. But if you take that same car and you go to Germany and you drive it on the Autobahn, you go 150 miles an hour, guess what? You're not in trouble at all because there's no law that you're breaking. And that's what Paul is getting at. There was no law that was broken and still death came. They didn't eat of the forbidden fruit. It's not like they snuck in generation by generation. When you read the generations that took place uh, there in Genesis 5, and so-and-so begot so-and-so and he lived so many years and then what? He died. And then so-and-so begot so-and-so and he lived so many years and then what? He died. They couldn't have stolen the, the fruit from the Garden of Eden like Adam and Eve because why? Because humanity got kicked out of the garden and it was guarded by angels. No, it was Adam's sin that was transferred down the line from Adam to his son 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 to his son. That that one offense resulted in the condemnation of all of humanity. One man's offense, all were condemned. You say, well, I don't like that. Well, that's still a reality even in our present world. If our president decided that he was going to launch all of the nukes that we possess at all of the other countries that we don't like currently, boy, there would be ramification and consequences for every single person here because that one man made a stupid decision. The consequences of Adam's sin brought condemnation into our lives. Every single person from the time that we're born, even the littlest baby, who, who, who is just born, they are with sin as well. See, it's interesting. Man is not a sinner because they sin. They sin because they're born sinners. Right? We are not sinners because we sin. But we sin because we're sinners. It's in our nature. That predisposition, you know, uh, Hebrews 12 talks about a sin that so easily besets us. He says, stay away from that. Like, for each one of us, there's something that you wrestle with and you wrestle with and I wrestle with. There's a sin that trips us up. There's this disposition that we have to a certain, some of us it's sexual, some of us it's substance, whatever it is. Where did that predisposition to sin come from? It came from the original sin. It came from the fallen nature of Adam. We're all born with it. How many of you had to teach your children how to be disobedient? How many, of your, how many of you had to teach your children to not share or to say no? It's just the opposite. We teach our children to, to share and say please and, and, and thank you because we're born sinful. And that is why we walk in sin. So by condemning the world through one man, the whole world is condemned. And that is how by one man we can all be rescued. See, it's genius. It's not an afterthought. It didn't catch God off. See, because 
the sin that is being dealt with is that original sin. God can deal with it all at once. The world was condemned through one man's sin, Adam. God saved the whole world through, his, through one man's sacrifice. That is Jesus. Right? And that's where Paul goes. Is he, he contrasts Adam and Jesus. Adam was the first Adam. Jesus is the last Adam. And, and he compares those two. He, he says of Adam, uh, for the judgment which came from the offense, that he's the likeness of Adam. I need my glasses. See, I'm trying to do this without my glasses. It's just not going to work. I'm going to have to get some hangies. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, this reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him. See, so according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of So Adam is a type of who? Adam is a type of Jesus. And see, man, now I'm even more confused. Because Adam was the sinner, Jesus was the Savior. And to be a type can be similarity or can be contrasted. And that's what Paul is doing. He's a type of Jesus. He's the opposite. Uh, Adam was the first Adam. Through Adam, sin came. Jesus was the last Adam. Through Jesus, salvation came. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, Adam blew it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was determined to save humanity. And there's all these connections that, that we can go through. But that is uh, what Paul is doing. He's making this uh, comparison between them. Uh, uh, that Adam blew it, but Jesus is our Savior. So through Adam, all guilty, but through Jesus, we're all saved. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, undeserved, unmerited favor. We've been justified just as though we've never sinned, that we might be counted righteousness right before the Lord. See, every single thing that is wrong with the world today is a result of Adam's failure. But the thing that we need to understand is that God is bigger than Adam's failure. See, and, and that's what Paul kind of finishes up with here, uh, is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The last couple verses. But all of the, the issues that we see in the world, all the things that bother us, I mean, we drive around our little town, Right? And there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of addiction. There's a lot of lostness. And see, when we understand what's going on, that, that all of this sin came from Adam, and that the answer is Jesus, it, it, it helps me to understand. It, it helps me to see things through God's eyes. See, when a baby is born with like a birth defect, we don't condemn that baby. Do we, we won't come against and say, how dare you be born that way? But for some reason, I look at a fallen world who was born into sin with a sinful nature, and I expect them to act like they're saved. See, it's very interesting that as we understand this and wrap our minds around it, there, there's implications all over from the way that God sees me to the way I interact with God. Being free, it frees us up to just worship the Lord, but also the way that we see other people in their sin. I'm much less quick to condemn and come against. And then these last two verses we'll finish up with very quickly. 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Why was the law given? 
that offense might abound. God gave us the law to show us that we couldn't keep the law. Here's the law to show you how offensive you really are. So the law was given that offense might abound. But where sin abounds, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, it doesn't matter how, how bad we've been. It doesn't matter how sinful we've been. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Where we sin, grace keeps up. Grace is bigger. God is bigger. This whole thing with Adam and the fallen nature of the world where everyone is under condemnation because of Adam's sin. Everyone's destined for destruction because of Adam's sin. God is bigger. Where there is sin, grace is greater. And what that does for us is it causes me, as we think about what, what Paul said to us tonight in chapter 5, as we consider the timing of his sacrifice for us, that it wasn't while we were doing good, but while we were sinners that Christ died. It reminds me that we don't earn God's love. It reminds me that God's love for me isn't based on my ability to perform or be lovable, but based on his goodness and his goodness alone. His grace, where sin abounds grace and more. When sin abounds, grace abounds more. It reminds me that there's nowhere we can go or anything that we can do that can't be forgiven, that is outside of God's forgiveness. It's all this talk tonight about, like, man, sin, it's not our fault, it's Adam's fault. And where sin abounds, grace abounds more. So why don't we just party it up? Why don't we just get down and do whatever we want to do? I'm glad you asked. you have to come back on Sunday for the answer. No, I'll give you a sneak preview, though. Because in the next sentence, Paul addresses this in verse 6, and this is what we'll be covering on Sunday. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And we'll talk about that on Sunday morning. But for tonight, now what a wonderful thing it is as Paul, after he lays down this groundwork of what justification is, he begins to bring us now through the rest of the, the book of Romans. What does it mean practically for our life? Man, we have peace with God. Man, isn't that a wonderful thing that we're at peace with the Lord? Man, that we've been justified that our sins have been dealt with, man, that we've been saved from his wrath, that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. It's just all these wonderful truths help us to understand our relationship with the Lord. And I know they're big concepts, and I know I'm throwing a lot at you guys. It's not an easy history lesson where we can look at what happened in the life of Jacob and we can slap you know, an application on it and be on our merry way. This causes us to really think things through. But man, we'll be so much better when we, when we do. And so, uh, man, leave tonight rejoicing in what the Lord has done for you. It's not about you. It's not about your performance. It's not about what you've done to be good. It's about God and him only. Through Adam, sin entered. That is why we have the death sentence. But through Jesus, we've been saved. Man, what a wonderful reality that is. So Lord, we thank you so much for that truth. And I just pray, Lord, that as we go our way, that we would embrace that reality and that we would walk in the freedom that that brings. Lord, that, that where your grace abounds, Lord, that causes me, that, that causes us 
really not to want to go out and sin more, but it, it causes us to want to worship. It causes us to want to be more devoted to you. When we understand what it is that you've done for us, our natural response, Lord, is to, to worship and to submit. And I pray that that's what we would do, that we would leave this place so blown away by your goodness, that we would desire to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice, even as your word says. So again, Lord, we thank you. I pray, Lord, that you would really help us to, to digest and, and to take in, Lord, your word. And that as we go, Lord, out into this world, into the things that you've called us to, Lord, that we would be yours, that we'd be your representatives, that we'd be a light shining for you. Lord, that you would keep us close and that you would bless us. We love you and we thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.